Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining me. I recently spoke with Chris Hanscom about his really interesting new book, The Real Modern, Literary Modernism and the Crisis of Representation in Colonial Korea. And this came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2013. Now, in the book, what Hanscom is doing is he's using case studies of three authors who were all members of something called the Group of Nine. And this was a literary group that existed and was working in the context of colonial Korea in the 1930s. And he uses these three case studies to open up not just different ways of thinking about and understanding modernism and modernist literature in Korea, but also thinking more broadly about what we assume to be the relationships between literature and history, and specifically literature coming out of what's presumed to be a realist context and the way we can use that literary production to understand the, the context, the history um, that, from which it emerges. And so what it's doing it's t- is taking some really fascinating case studies coming from the work of Pak Tae-won, Kim Yoo-jong, and Lee Tae-jun, to help us rethink assumptions about the relationships between fiction, and history about kind of how history is understood often as context and about how, you know, literary production, especially in the realist mode, can often be read as a straightforward indication of the historical events that it's emerging from. And he pro- he really usefully problematizes all of these assumptions. And so I found it really fascinating as somebody who doesn't um, work on modern history or a history of literature or Korea as a tool to help me think through the relationships between literary and historical production more generally. And so uh, I think it's worth reading and it's worth thinking about and it'll repay close reading, either if you're someone who's interested in um, the case study he's talking about, modern literature in Korea and modern Korea, or if you're interested in these larger issues that it helps unpack and speak to. So it's a book that's very ambitious insofar as it's not just aiming to contribute, and I think it's successful in these aims, to a specific subfield of history of literature, but it's also aiming, I think, to reshape how we think about comparative literature and history of literature more generally. So I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Christopher Hanscom about his new book, The Real Modern, Literary Modernism and the Crisis of Representation in Colonial Korea. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Chris, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today about a book that I really, really enjoyed. So thanks for being here. Well, thanks, Carla. It's really just delightful to have a chance to talk about the book with you. So could you start us off by talking a little bit about what brought you to modern Korean literature? How did you come to this general field um, that you've decided to work in? Well, it was kind of a winding path, I guess. Uh, and when I was an undergraduate, I studied a sort of variety of literatures and was just interested in literature as far back as I can remember, really, and trying to understand how 
literature works and how meaning and emotion is achieved in language. I wouldn't have put it that way as a kid. Um, but I think that's been a sort of longstanding interest of mine. And then through a sort of passing interest in Japanese literature when I was an undergraduate, um, I became aware of and interested in uh, Korean literature, but quite late in college. So it was after graduation that I moved to Korea and spent a couple of years there uh, working on the language and um, taking some graduate level courses um, at university there on literature and literary history. Um, and I quite fell in love with the, with the literature. I, I thought it was, I think it's just a, a, an extraordinary sort of canon of works that's largely understudied or was at the time. Uh, understudied and under-translated um, in, in the English language world or in the Western world. And so I came back to the States um, to complete a PhD at UCLA under um, Professor Peter Lee, who really is the founder of the Korean literature studies in the U.S., um, and I've just sort of moved on, moved on from, that, from that point. So um, that's how I came into the field. Uh, a little bit of a winding road, but uh, I'm glad I ended up where I did. Great. So the book that we're talking about today explores literary modernism in the work of three major writers who were all central to literary production in 1930s Korea. And we'll talk much, much more about who they are, um, what the context was, and what this idea of literary modernism means and how you're transforming it um, later on in the course of our conversation. But first, can you talk a little bit about how you came to this topic? How did you decide to focus on these particular themes and on these writers as exemplars of the themes that you're working on? Um, specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the project really started off um, with a question uh, that developed out of work I did in, in one of Peter Lee's seminars on early 20th century modern literature uh, as a graduate student. I mean, it really came out of my dissertation, so um, began when, well, while I was a student. Um, I guess it was more of a, an anomaly than a question, really. It was how was it that, and this comes out in the book as well, how was it that in the 1930s in Korea, during this period of increasing censorship, of course, this is the colonial period. Japan colonized Korea in 1910, uh, colonization that lasted until 1945 at the end of what we call World War II in the States. Um, how was it that during the 1930s, which is a later decade in this period, a, a decade where we see increasing censorship, um, we see the state, the colonial state moving toward uh, the enforcement of a policy that would more or less eradicate the Korean language, not only in education, in schools or public discourse, but also in daily life, in the home, in family names, and so on. Um, how was it that during this period, we see some of what is arguably the highest quality fiction of the 20th century in the Korean language? Um, so it was really, I was reading uh, some of the work of um, uh, there's a critic, uh, South Korean critic, Kim Min-jung, and she asks the same question in her work. How was it that these authors, these modernist authors, produced not only literary works, but also criticism at such a high level during a period of intensifying just scrutiny and censorship? Um, and so this was really the, the sort of question or anomaly or curiosity that got me um, interested in the project. And... Um, I guess the broader question that this raises is also this one of the central questions of the book, which is uh, the question of the relationship between the context, in this case, the colonial context, uh, and the text, or the, the historical context of the period, um, and the artworks or literary works that are produced in that setting or during that period. Um, so, yeah. 
And that's actually something that we'll definitely talk about later because as a historian coming to this, but a historian with a kind of literary bent, um, that's one of the aspects of the work that I think makes it really, really interesting and really important to think about even if um, you come to this without um, a background or a deep interest in literature, that issue of context and how we understand context conceptually and thematically is also very, very important um, for those readers who are coming at this from a historical uh, kind of right. or perspective. So that we'll definitely talk about that. I love that part of the book. Right, right, sure. So this book started as a dissertation, is that right? That's right. So can you talk a little bit about the transformation from dissertation to book? And were there any major um, transformations in the project? Were there any ways that you rethought some of the arguments that you were making in the dissertation? Or otherwise, were there any major um, conceptual changes or physical changes in the project from one form to the other? Yeah, I think that there were. That's a great question, and uh, I'm glad you asked it. Uh, I think uh, there were some major transformations of the of the um, dissertation when it was turned into a book. I was receiving great advice um, during that period from John Zimmer, who was then the director of the um, publications program at, at Harvard, the Asia Center, um, and then editors. My Will Hamill was my editor during the first part of the process, and then Deborah Delgais during the second part of the publication process. And I also looked at um, books. Everyone knows this book, but William Germano's book from dissertation to book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just it's just fantastic. And so I, I took as much as I could for the excellent advice of these people who were sort of working with me and guiding me, um, and then outside works like um, Germano's book. Um, and so a number of things happened to the dissertation as it was transformed um, into a book. There's there's something that um, uh, is the, one of the most important things actually for, was for me to rethink the audience. I mean, there's a really narrow audience for the dissertation. It's your advisor or your committee. Um, and then imagining a broader audience, imagining people in different fields, people who have no familiarity with uh, modern Korean literature whatsoever. Um, reading the book, it was that was a real adjustment for me um, in bringing the dissertation into a more of a book form. Um, and then there was the um, how can I say it? There's just the the idea that the book is sort of a fundamentally different sort of animal. It's no longer. It was no longer my absolute mastery of this particular topic or knowledge of these particular authors that I was going to display through you know my my academic language or many citations or long footnotes, but um, sort of more like my ability to convey that topic and the main ideas to a more general audience. And so that was a major shift too. And how this worked out practically, I think, in the um, restructuring of the dissertation was the dissertation was three very long chapters. Um, and I, I had to break this up. And they, 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 there was really no through line. There was no story that was being told. They were sort of individually focused on authors. Um, and so I had to break this up. And what I did is use sort of a dual architecture where I spend one chapter dealing with a particular author's critical works or their place in literary history and so on. Um, and then an immediately adjacent chapter, the immediately following chapter, um, doing a reading of that author's fictional works in light of what we've learned in the previous chapter. And so... Um, I had, I had a good chance. I had a postdoctoral year, um, and I had a good chance to sort of reframe this, um, the structure of the dissertation. And so these paired chapters are framed by an introduction and an opening chapter, opening chapter where I lay out the mm, sort of theoretical framework of the argument, and then a conclusion where I recap, um, uh, but also make some explicit connections uh, and maybe make a little more explicit the common arguments I've been making throughout through a series of. Um, polemical um, statements. And then I mentioned it before, but I think the, the last thing um, to say about the transformation of the dissertation into the book is um, this idea of a through line. 
Um, this, I, which is a, a word I learned as I was revising. I, I'm not sure it's a real word. Um, the, the, the sense of this sort of idea of a central argument that you return to again and again in the book or from chapter to chapter. Um, and this was just crucial. I mean, it seems like common sense when you think about what a book should be. Um, but a story or the idea of telling a story is just not necessarily uppermost in your mind when you're writing a dissertation. Um, but I think it's essential for the book. And so the story that, I mean, this, this story that I told in the book ended up being um, the story of this sort of increasing distrust of language or this increasing awareness of the fallibility of language as the colonial period progressed and the response to that distrust um, in modernist fiction. So, But it, it took some time to find that that story that I was telling in the dissertation. Great. Thank you so much. So let's yeah. get right into it. Um, and I'll kind of set the stage a little bit, and then we can talk about some of the sort of major, really, really fascinating concepts you're bringing up, even in this sort of introductory part of the book. So the book opens by presenting a work of or a work by one of the three main figures of the study. And it's, this work introduces some of the typical characteristics of modernist fiction. So this is a work um, by Pak Taewon. And let me know right. if I'm, or maybe not let me know, but forgive me if I'm mispronouncing anything here. I mispronounce everything. I miss my, my own name sometimes. So um, this, this work that sort of brings us into the, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about modernist fiction is a work called Fatigue Record of Half a Day by Pak Taiwan. And you take us into this scene with a window um, that's in this book that's really, really interesting. So we're going to talk about him in a little bit, um, but I just wanted to sort of mention for listeners who may not know anything about modernist fiction. Like, what does that mean? What does that, um, uh, what does that indicate? You take us through some of the major characteristics of modernist fiction that are embedded in this, in this scene, um, from this, um, really exemplary work. So it's related in the first person by a kind of unreliable and compromised narrator. Um, it's, it's happening in this urban space that's full of objects and the kind of materiality of what's going on is going to become important later on. Um, this character is wandering with a kind of lack of destination or purpose. Purpose. And this story, importantly, and this becomes a real feature of the um, through line of the book, right, that we're going to follow from here on in, the story is really self-reflexive about the act of writing. And so you, um, among other characteristics that you talk about here and later, um, this is meant to, as I read it as a reader, introduce, um, like, here's what we're typically thinking about when we think about modernist fiction. Okay, so sure. the, language, the relationship between language and the real, some idea of the real, becomes really important from the very beginning of the book. So this brings us into some um, some really big questions that you use this and then the other cases to open up. And I'd like to maybe start us out um, by asking you to talk about some of them. One of them has already come up, and this is the relationship between history and the literary works produced under its influence. Now, you're very explicit um, here and then later in the book um, in that you're writing against what you call the communicative model of literary interpretation. So can you talk, start us off maybe by talking a little bit about that, um, the relationship between history and literature as you're conceptualizing it insofar as it's crucial to the kind of argument that you're making in the book? What's the big deal and how are you um, revising how we typically think of this? Yeah, sure. That's, that's a great question. And it is really central to, um, to the book. And you know, we, we may get to this later, but it's sort of one of those aspects that's carried through into the work I'm doing um, now as well. Um, but I think the, to, to sort of understand the question, it's important to um, think about the sort of the, the genre argument that the book makes. Right? Um, and this may not be familiar um, to listeners, but the, the sort of conflict or 
don't know if I want to use such strong language, but uh, sort of the location of difference between realism and modernism in the Korean case has really arguably defined um, a 20th century uh, Korean literary history, maybe even into the 21st century um, as well. So the genre argument that the books that, that the book makes is um, I really sort of try to work against um, the idea that. Uh, realist texts may be read or must be read um, as political and historical or as political precisely in their capture of the historical. Um, and that modernist texts um, are by nature apolitical or sort of without a politics. And um, you know, I, this is, I sort of sum this up in the conclusion with the statement, Korean modernism is political. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So there's the sense. So what I'm getting at is that there's a sense in you know, sort of standard or conventional literary history that realism is the genre that's most able to capture history and as a consequence is the most political genre. Uh, and that modernism and its inability to capture history or to accurately capture reality um, is apolitical and is therefore devalued in um, what this sort of communicative model of literary interpretation or what I would sort of equally awkwardness um, with equal awkwardness uh, also called the historical realist model of literary history. Um, this idea that literary works are to be valued to the extent that they convey or relate history to the reader um, and are political to the extent that they do so as well is something that I try to resist um, uh, and, and and really take an opposite stance on uh, in the book. And so the other way um, that history or the relationship between history and literary works really um, comes to the fore, I think, in the book is this idea that history um, is often understood as determining uh, or, or over-determining uh, both the production of literary works and also the reception. Um, and so to try to get at some understanding of how literary works or our works more generally, cultural products, might have uh, um, an impact on the historical itself, on, on their period, on their politics, on uh, that context, um, is also something that's very difficult to do, but uh, something that, that I at least wanted to try to begin to get at um, in thinking about that relationship between uh, history uh, and the um, and the literary works. And the third, the third, I, I, I just stop me if I'm going on, you know, for too long, but I, I think it's really uh, an important question that you asked. Uh, the third way I, I, I was thinking about the relationship between history and especially literary history um, and literary works is in the context of sort of global or world literature, um, right? So there's a, there's a literary history that values literature to the extent that it reflects a certain reality. And then um, there's a way in sort of world literature where um, this valuation of literature according to that capacity um, takes place specifically in relation to its capacity to relate a non-Western reality or a particular, or a particular reality. And so in this case, um, I think literary history itself takes on this you know, awkwardly uh, named communicative model of literary interpretation or historical realist model of literary history um, and uses it um, in a way to sort of not devalue, but sort of marginalize uh, what we could call Korean modernism in this case. And so this comes out in the conclusion as well in one of those polemical statements, Korean modernism is modernism. I mean, uh, modernism is a global phenomenon. Understanding non-Western modernism as somehow derivative uh, or alternative uh, really, I think, reveals a Eurocentric politics of that kind of um, literary history and that um, aspect of the relationship between history and literary works that you mentioned. Yeah, and I think this is one of the aspects of the book that's like really beautifully translates well beyond the specific field that you're writing um, about. And I'll just sort of briefly mention. I mean, my my home field is history of science in China, and the, you can see the the um, 
same kind of phenomenon where there's history of science and then there's, oh, what are they doing over there in China, right? And it becomes a kind of marginalization in a way of China as not being part of the dominant um, discourse of what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, so let's say science or medicine, but as the sort of other case that helps us understand the margins. Um, so this, sorry, go on. Oh, no, not at all. I was just, I was going to say that this is, you know, there's a kind of trajectory of this kind of argument in, in studies of non-Western modernism. Um, the first one that comes to mind is, you know, Shumei Shur's book on Chinese modernism, which makes very similar points, and also um, Seiji Lippitt's book on Japanese modernism, how to think about um, these modernist practices uh, outside of a model which sees uh, Europe as a sort of origin or center of, of modernism. That's right. So the book does this um, by focusing on, as you've already mentioned, close readings of the critical and the fictional works of three main writers. These are all writers that are part of a kind of modernist collective known as the Group of Nine, and you talk about this in the book. And these writers are Pak Tae-won, Kim Yu-jong, and Lee Tae-jun, and we're going to talk about them in turn. Now, the even though, as you've talked about um, already, you are complicating in the book, or the book is complicating the relationship between literature and context, there is a way in which you're taking very seriously the context in which these works are produced, or the works by these three authors are produced, and that's by um, being very clear that these writers are working in a frame that's specifically modern, but also specifically colonial. And the book takes very seriously the colonial context in which these works are being written. So can you talk for a moment about that? So in what ways um, are you trying to really foreground or make integral to the argument you're telling the colonial nature of the work that's being produced um, in the book? Yeah, I think this is one of the most difficult questions um, to answer. I've, I face this question sort of repeatedly, um, and it's tough because uh, there are ways to um, approach the relationship between the colonial context and works of literature, works of art, you know, cultural products. Um, you can, for instance, think about censorship um, and how, how works were literally structured by a sort of censoring authority. Uh, or colonial authority, um, or you can think about the the content of the works, and this is what happens often, I think, in sort of interpretations of realist works. How those works do or do not address the particularity of the colonial context. Do they adequately convey? Um, were they allowed to ad adequately convey uh, the sort of um, reality of everyday life uh, under uh, colonial rule as a sort of colonized subject or a colonized population in the first half of the 20th century in Korea? Um, but what I do is slightly different. Um, the, I try to understand the colonial context discursively um, as a sort of discourse. And this is not, this is certainly not unique uh, to me. Colonial discourse studies is um, a huge field. Um, uh, but I try to understand the, the sort of discursive, the colonial context as a discursive context and um, sort of make the basic argument that maybe this is putting it over simply, but the sort of innovative techniques, the theories of language, the sort of the liter literary practice um, of these modernist authors was a response to an excessive need on the part of colonial authority to fix narrative meaning, right? Um, that modernist works in and of themselves were a form of resistance in a context where um, an external authority, in this case a colonial authority, determines the appropriateness, the appropriate sense of linguistic utterances, where um, 
in essence, the relationship between what you say and what you mean is destabilized, right? Who can say what, where, when, and how um, uh, is determined by an external authority. And under these kind of restrictions, and also in a context where um, colonial discourse, which is, you know, it's interesting that you're in the history of science. I mean, this idea of scientific discourse where language is completely transparent uh, and only the content matters. I think this is also a uh, characteristic of colonial or imperial discourse, which um, understood itself as unproblematically defining the identity of the colonized or the reality of the colonized. Um, when you think about how discourse works in the case of race and racism, this is very similar to what I'm thinking about. Um, and so, rethinking the colonial context in terms of discourse uh, and then thinking about these modernist works, which are so often considered apolitical and not engaged at all with the colonial context whatsoever. And you'll see uh, in the works themselves, they, they rarely, if ever, mention colonization uh, or the reality of life under colonization. And what can we take away from this? Can we take away that um, they are apolitical, they're, that the authors were not interested in the colonial context or, or were even glad to be, you know, or collaborating with colonization, or can we sort of rethink that context and think about how they were using language as a means of resistance or challenge or just the exposure uh, of the kind of discursive constraints that they were operating under um, in colonial Korea. Thank you. So also in this context, um, another major kind of work that you're doing and major sort of ground in, from which all of this springs is something that you're calling a crisis of representation um, in Seoul literary circles in the 1930s. So in the work of each of these three authors that we're going to go on to explore, there's a kind of skepticism about the capacity of language to correspond to whatever world is beyond language and explicit discussions of and then manifestations of these ideas in their other writings, how to overcome this problem how to deal with this problem. So you're arguing that there's a crisis of representation and that each of the authors is responding to this crisis by striving to present what you call a realer real. Okay, so can you talk about this? Um, what is this crisis of representation that um, listeners and readers need to understand in order to understand how these three authors are going to be responding to this? So what do we need to know basically about this crisis to then understand how each mode of dealing with this crisis is going to push your argument further and further. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is, I mean, the, the concept of the crisis, um, I think, is key. It comes up again and again. I noticed this when I was doing sort of readings from the 1930s, not just in, in fictional texts, but also in criticism and even journalistic um, writing. This idea of crisis uh, that was so important to the 1930s. And so we see it in a number of ways, I think, um, and across really the ideological spectrum, the um, imha who was uh, sort of uh, uh, an important figure in the leftist literary movement in Korea and closely related to the, the sort of leftist organization of artists and authors um, in the early to mid-1930s, um, saw a crisis in the incapacity of, or not the incapacity, but the, the um, what's a good uh, way to say this? There's a kind of gap between what authors can say uh, under colonial rule and what they can mean. Um, and this is sort of constitutive gap that limits the literature of the of the of the um, early 1930s. Or um, Kim Girim, another uh, uh, sort of critic, uh, modernist critic, um, also involved with the the group of nine that you mentioned earlier, um, sees this gap between uh, language, its capacity to capture, uh, particularly the modern. Right, the modern outpaces the language that can be used to describe it, and so modernism is one of those moments when language attempts to catch up with the speed. Um, the progress of its environment, the modern environment. 
uh, or or Che Jae Seo. I also mentioned, I think, in the book, um, this idea of subjective crisis of the modern. How uh, with the, the disassociation of the individual from traditional community or a sort of traditional collective community, and the isolation or alienation of the individual in the in particularly urban space, um, what you get is a kind of split of the self where. Um, on the one hand, you have a self who is acting. It's kind of the animal self. You're acting, you're eating, you're talking, um, more or less unconsciously. And then on the other hand, you have this observing self within um, who laughs at, who criticizes, who satirizes the acting um, self or the animal self. And so all, in all these ways, sort of subjective crises, social crises, um, even political or ideological crises in the case of Imha, uh, the idea of crisis is, I think, really important to thinking about the 1930s in Korea. But what you're talking about is this very specific um, term, crisis of representation, which is, again, not um, a term that I've invented. It's been used um, by several people in many different ways. But what I mean here uh, by crisis of representation is uh, exactly what, what, what you said, this growing skepticism about the capacity of language to capture reality um, there's uh, the idea of a fall from referentiality, and this is from Foucault, and Ray Chow talks about it in her book, um, The Age of the World Target. Um, but there's this idea of a fall from referentiality being characteristic of the modern. Um, but then, as you said before, I, I try to understand this fall from referentiality, this increasing skepticism or doubt um, about less suspicion about the capacity of language to do its work. Um, to refer to objects in the world, events, um, people. Um, but there's an aspect of this that's also specific to the colonial context. Um, there's a, a work by Yi Jin Gung, critic, uh, sort of uh, philosopher and uh, social critic, Yi Jin Gung. Uh, he asks, can the colonized speak? Right? And the answer is no. Um, you, you either speak from a position of particularity as the colonized and your language is consequently devalued um, in the colonial context, or you speak from a universal position. The easiest way to think about this is to think about yourself speaking in Japanese during the colonial period, um, speaking from a universal uh, point of enunciation. In this case, the, particu the, particular, the particularity of your situation is lost. Your identity is colonized, um, is lost. So there's this idea, not only that there's a fall from referentiality and an increasing skepticism or doubt about the capacity of language to uh, precisely uh, refer to uh, the real, but also the idea that this is specifically related to the colonial context. There's something in that context. There's something about living um, in a, in a limiting or limited uh, discursive context of colonization that um, really brings uh, the potential of language, um, its accuracy, its adequacy to reality um, into crisis. Great. Now, as we move um, kind of into the chapters of the book, we move to these uh, three pairs of chapters in each case um, focused on one particular figure and taking us into both the kind of critical and then liter or more fictional work by that figure. So let's dive right into that. The first figure that you uh, introduce us to in chapter two and chapter three is this guy, um, Pak Taewon, who opened up the book with his story, Fatigue Record of Half a Day. And I mentioned on um, that window scene that, that you opened with, that's really beautiful. Now, how is, let's, how about we kind of introduce him for listeners? Um, how is he typically understood in literary history? histories and how are you revising that typical interpretation of what he represents as a literary mon modernist figure in this period in Korea? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, uh, one is a really, um, I don't know, Pak one is a, a really interesting figure, um, to me. He's, uh, this tall guy, you know, walked around Seoul in a sort of double-breasted, you know, button-down overcoat. Um, he had a bowl cut, 
right? Um, he, which he, he, um, had, uh, was, was, he claimed was popular in Paris at the time. He had, he had sort of, uh, tortoiseshell, these round glasses that he wore. Um, and he would, you would see him strolling around Seoul with another, uh, sort of, um, key modernist figure, the author, uh, um, and poet, Isang. Um, you'd see him strolling around Seoul, you know, with his, he carried a cane and a, and a notebook, um, at, at all times. He was just really quite a, he cut quite a figure, um, in, in, on the streets of, of colonial Seoul. And so he's really understood. Um, in literary history as a modernist. Um, and yeah, so uh, he, he's, he's, he's just such an interesting figure. I'm trying to restrain myself from talking more. The other, the, <laughs> the other thing to say about Pak Tae-won is that he's uh, an author who ended up going north, um, I think, in or around, in the, in the late 40s or maybe in 1950, um, uh, during the, or just before the Korean War. Um, and actually had a long, successful career um, in, in North Korea. He died in 1986, um, but he wrote, you know, uh, multi-volume works when he was there. He was he was praised by Kim Il-sung. Um, he was one of the few authors who went north to have a very successful career um, career there. Um, and so, consequently, his work was more or less banned in, in, in South Korea until 1989 or 1990. Um, and so there wasn't much work on him done until um, that, that there was sort of a thawing of... Um, of that uh, of of his work in the south and so his place in literary history is sort of dual there's this aspect of it which is the has to do with national division and his success in the north after after the korean war um but for the purposes of the book his place in literary history is really as a modernist um he's described uh by his contemporaries um, as having a very experimental approach to the use of language. Um, he's described by, you know, critics today, um, as having the same kind of, in, in the same kind of, you know, the same kind of language, um, this, uh, uh, the, the kind of experimental language that you talked about when you talked about the opening of the book and his, his short story fatigue. Um, well, what, what else, you know, this can we say about, uh, what Pak Tae-won does? I mean, his close attention to the style of his writing, um, his focus on interiority or, or psychological depiction, um, his, his sort of membership in an art for, art, art for art's sake, um, a coterie, this, this group of nine, the, his portrayal of the modern silly, uh, city dweller, um, in colonial Korea as well. So typically understood as the quintessential modernist and consequently as, apolitical as not at all being engaged with the colonial or even the class uh, context in which he was writing um, his his fiction was described as um, what's the term as sort of uh, fiction of manners it's purely descriptive um, Kim Nam Chun another leftist uh, critic at the time um, called his 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 style of writing panoramic it just describes people on the streets their customs and their manners but he said that searching for a kind of moral in the midst of this is just uh, a futile um, endeavor. Um, other critics talked about him as a sort of self-absorbed esthete. His works are all, you know, all his own self-portrait. There's nothing else in them. And I think, um, I'm not sure if this is in the book or not, but Im Hwa, uh, the leftist critic I mentioned earlier, um, talks about um, his work as a kind of um, minutely detailed description of cross-sections of a, of a, of a disorder, chaotic reality, um, within which the character, we'll talk about later, Kubo, um, uh, becomes a sort of uh, corpse, right? An ethic, uh, sort of unethical or uh, amoral corpse, um, and so understood whether from the left negatively or whether from a neutral point of view as a kind of essential modernist. Um, no matter what, uh, thought of as a kind of modernist author. And so, what I do um, in the book is to try to rethink about rethink Pak Tae Won's work as 
as realists, um, as almost uh, uh, hyper-realists. Right? So if the modernist is sort of tasked with both um, representing a break with the past, right? In this, in this way, we can understand Park Tae-won's work as new. Um, and with also expressing the experience of the modern moment or critiquing that modern moment. Um, I point to uh, sort of instead Park Tae-won's distrust or doubt of language, right? Um, this is what you're saying, you know, he might ask you, but what do you really mean by this? What do you mean by your language? Um, and then in his critical work, in, in, the, in the critical work that I especially look at, um, Oh, what's the uh, title? Representation, depiction, technique. Um, how he tries to bend or use language. He acknowledges this sort of multiplicity of language and the difficulty, this this fallibility or crisis of representation that we were talking about. He acknowledges this, but then he tries to use language in a way. His his style, his technique is designed to try to compel language into a more accurate or adequate relationship with what um, he's trying to um, depict. So. A good example is he talks about, in this work, representation, depiction, technique, he talks about, um, uh, uh, what can we call this, a kind of encyclopedia by Jules Renard, a friend, the French author, um, a kind of natural history. It was illustrated by Toulouse-Lautrec, um, and he talks about the genius of this. Uh, one, of the, one of the instances was the representation of ants uh, by using the numeral three. So you can, you can imagine this, how if you repeat the number three, it looks like a series of ants marching across the page. And so this attempt to sort of stylistically move beyond the ordinary constraints of language, you don't ordinarily write uh, the number three over and over again in your narrative, but then to locate how this is absolutely adequate to the representation of the ant, visually in this case, um, the representation of the ant on the page, I think is really wonderful and it's key to what he's doing. Now, other examples in, in that critical work are um, he would reverse the direction of the, at this point um, in, in sort of Korean publishing, the text was um, written top to bottom on the page and from right to left. And so what he would do sometimes is reverse the direction of the text. If somebody was um, standing above the other character, that text would flow down. And then the, 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 if the character was speaking from below, that text would flow up on the page. And so he made these kind of typographical um, innovations as well, which um, look strange and sort of lead you to characterize what he's doing as a stylistic or technical or, or modernist. Um, but which actually, when you, when you think about it uh, a little more closely, um, really more accurately or more realistically depict um, visually or sometimes orally um, what's happening in the scene that he's trying to get at. Great. Thank you so much. And I'm sure um, I'm not the only one who just visually started typing threes down a page in my mind to be like, oh yeah, that <laughs> really does kind of look like ants. It looks like ants. <laughs> awesome. Um, so in this chapter, you introduce a concept um, called that of the double bind. Um, and this is one example of something that you do in all of these chapters, which is really, really great. Um, it's kind of using not only um, giving us a really um, textured encounter with this particular work and this particular author, but also using this to open up a larger kind of discourse about these issues. And here this is done by the use of Greg Bateson, Gregory Bateson's um, idea of the double bind. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great sort of point to um, get at what I'm trying to do there. Because as you, as you mentioned um, before, um, when you asked about the sort of specific, uh, specificity of the colonial context and 
in in the book. Um, and my answer was that I'm trying to think about the colonial context discursively as a kind of discourse or a sort of context of language and how modernists responded to this um, particular situation of language. Um, what was communicable and what was not? Um, and these are difficult questions to get at, but I think it's, those are the questions that these modernists were really uh, focused on. And one way to think about that is, as you said, this, the idea of the double bind, um, sort of characterizing the linguistic situation of colonization, right? Linguistic colonization as a double bind. And this idea of the double bind is, um, comes from Gregory Bateson, um, his work. He was, uh, uh, doing work on the communic communicative origins of schizophrenia. This is in the 1950s. I think he was working in Palo Alto with a group of, um, researchers. Um, and his idea was that, um, as opposed to sort of uh, physiological you know, sources, the idea, uh, sort of physiological ideology of schizophrenia, that it in some cases could emerge from uh, contradictory uh, communicative context um, in childhood. Right? So the, the simplest example is uh, like the sign that you read that says, do not read this sign. Right? You're being commanded to do something that you've already done uh, or that in order to understand the command, you have to do anyway. You have to read the sign in order to receive the command. There's a kind of double line there. Should I read it or shouldn't I? Um, but the classic example that he uses is um, the situation where uh, a child, a young man, has had a kind of psychotic break and he's hospitalized. Um, and his mother uh, goes to see him in the hospital and um, he moves toward her to embrace her. And this is the, the, when they're first meeting. Um, and she pulls away from him. Right? She's uh, somehow, uh, there's no detail in, in, in the discussion, but she's somehow uh, disgusted or uh, frightened of her child. Um, and so he ceases to approach her. He stops moving toward her. And then she chastises him for not embracing her. What, don't you love me? Don't you want to embrace me? So there's this uh, idea that you know, there, there are dual or um, contradictory injunctions um, in play here. One is, you know, stay back, stay away from me. And the other is, as a son, you need to embrace me. Um and this, I mean, there's also, there are many other sort of um, conditions that characterize the double bind. One is that you can't talk about the double bind. Um, the first rule of Fight Club, right? the, first, <laughs> the first rule of the double bind is you cannot talk about the double bind. And so he's, uh, the child is prevented from talking about it. He can't call attention to um, the fact that his mother is giving him contradictory signals um, without, you know, offending her, without without making her culpable for what she's, what, what she's doing, uh, sort of inflicting on her child. Um, and so what I noticed here is that it's very similar to sort of logic of assimilation or colonial assimilation. You're you're getting this, when you think about, you know, there are different models of uh, sort of colonization. And so this doesn't fit with all of them. But when you think about a style of colonization that's trying to assimilate the population to make them the same, uh, as, as the colonizing population, then really the messages that you're receiving are contradictory. On the one hand, the colonizer is saying, be like us, right? Uh, in, in the case of Korea, you know, learn Japanese, you know, dress, dress like we dress, travel like we travel, hold the same political values that we hold. Um, ultimately, toward the late 30s and 1940s, right, share in our military campaigns, right? Um, take part in our government. Um, so be like us. Uh, but then, uh, on the other hand, you're receiving the message that it's more like, but don't be too much like us, right? Because really, if you completely assimilate a population, there's no longer any need for the colonial project whatsoever. And so there's always this underlying injunction against becoming too much like uh, the colonizer right? or the dominant population. And so thinking about assimilation or colonial assimilation as sort of a context of a double bind, and then thinking about 
what Bateson saw as schizophrenia, but his his colleagues also saw other sort of ailments or somatic symptoms emerging from the situation of the double bind. And then thinking about what kind of symptoms we might see or what kind of ailments we might see emerging from the, the double bind that's particular to colonial assimilation is where I, this is where I started thinking about um, Pak Tae-won's work. Um, and it's so interesting because one of the ways in which he's um, often characterized is as a neurasthenic. Right? Neurasthenia is, is, isn't really a word that's used much uh, these days. I think it fell out of the um, uh, sort of uh, uh, common uh, parlance in the, the 90s, right, and um, maybe early 1990s. But it was it was a sort of dominant way of understanding the understanding the relationship between the individual and the context of modernity: the speed, um, the rapidity, the the sound, the loudness, the noise of urban life, and so on. It was developed by George Beard um, in the 1880s, um, and it's this idea that exposure to modern life enervates you it, it sucks your energy um, away and you suffer from all sorts of ailments as a consequence and so practically one is often thought of as this kind of enervated intellectual who's exposed to who expresses um, the speed uh, the sounds uh, the, the sights the overwhelming sights um, the the crowds of people um, of the city um, and it's consequently sort of low energy and um, suffering from uh, all these I mean Pak Tae-won's character, Kubo, in One Day in the Life of the Author, Mr. Kubo, which is the, the work of fiction that I deal with in the, in the next chapter, is constantly suffering from ailments. He has an ear infection. He can't see properly. Um, he just he has a medical dictionary at home that he looks through. He's always trying to find out what's wrong with him. Um, he's also looking at other people when he visits uh, Seoul Station and sits in the waiting room, or when he visits a cafe. He's constantly pointing out the diseases that others have or might have. Uh, based on the symptoms that he's 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 seeing exhibited, um, so is this a possibility? Is this a kind of um, possible outcome of the of the double bind in in Pak Tae-won's characterization of uh, his uh, recurring character Kubo? Um, and I read it, I read it a little differently. I, I try to understand um, Pak Tae-won's character as being hysterical instead of neurasthenic. But in any, in any case. I think this this sort of prevalence of disease or discussion of disease or ailment um, can be, I think, read in a really interesting way in relation to um, the colonial context, if we think about that colonial context as being characterized as a kind of double bind. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, and I'll just uh, yeah. mention for listeners, without asking you to talk more about it, that, um, that you're doing this in Chapter 3 by looking specifically at the relationship between disease, desire, and language. Um, and this move from schizophrenia to hysteria um, and talking, you know, you talk a little bit about neurasthenia as well, um, is one of the many ways in which um, these two chapters in particular, 2 and 3, are also really fascinating for anyone interested in the history and literature about disease um, in a way that might not be super obvious from the title, right? Um, there's a lot of history of disease happening here. So right. as we move into the next pair of chapters, um, we move to the work of Kim Yu-jong. Now he's, you mentioned here that he's typically understood in literary histories as a kind of socially engaged and realistic writer, interested specifically in kind of the figure of the um, uneducated country bumpkin, I think you call it, as a source of humor. Um, and you're right. actually, you're really revising that um, and looking at a very different aspect of his work and of how he's responding to this crisis of representation in the 
these two chapters and focusing specifically on the importance of irony in his work. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? What do we need to know about the work of Kim Yu-jong here and the way he's using irony to understand this aspect of the argument as you're developing it here in these chapters of the book? Yeah, so the, I think you know Kim Yu-jong is also a very interesting figure. He's, he's a canonical figure in Korean literary history, um, and his place in literature is in literary history is, as you said, as a kind of realist. Right? He's known as this kind of earthy, um, of the people kind of author who uses ribald humor um, and uses the vernacular, right? Uses uh, so dialect in his in his fiction to really get at the reality of, as you said, the sort of country bumpkin um, or the or the rural figure, um, and. It, Again, exactly as I did with Park Tae-won, reading the modernist as a kind of hyper-realist, um, both in his theorization of language, but also in his literary practice. Um, here I try to read Kim Yu-jong as, as a modernist, which is just sort of outrageous um, to, to try to think about Kim Yu-jong as a modernist. But And it, it wouldn't have occurred to me, but I read this um, letter. He published... Um, he was in love, he or, or lust, with um, uh, a woman, and he published a kind of a love letter to her, um, or he wrote it, and it was published in the month of his death in 1937. He only lived to be um, 29, um, called uh, Thoughts from a Sick Bed. And so he's writing this to his lover, Pak Bong-ja. Um, and in this, in this letter, uh, he talks about pretty explicit. It's not your typical love letter. Um, really, it's a sort of discourse on literature um, and the sort of comparing his relationship to her with his relationship to writing and to language. Um, and in this letter, he talks about how it's, in his opinion, absolutely impossible uh, for language to uh, capture uh, reality. It's just not possible, either subjectively, right, the sort of uh, the, the sort of psychological novel, the, the, the um, sort of entering the, the subject, the eye, and, and capturing the reality of their subjective life. Or objectively, uh, he says that, you know, even a camera uh, can't capture adequately reality. It stops time. It doesn't move with time. The photograph doesn't. Um, even if a, if, if a camera can't capture reality, then it's laughable to think that uh, language, the words that we use, can can come any closer to the capture of reality. So he takes issue in the, in the letter, and it's a fascinating. I'd, I'd love to go into more detail, but I'm sure that. Um, we don't have time for it today, but uh, take a look at this chapter. The letter itself is just wonderful, and it points to uh, Kim Yu-jung that doesn't ordinarily appear in literary history. Somebody who had doubt about the capacity of language to um, record reality. And this is in a context where he's, the, you know, in the opening pages of his collected works, it says that this is an author who's, it's almost as, as though his fiction is a kind of sound and video recording of rural life in colonial Korea. I mean, there's there's this idea that there's almost no mediation between his fiction and reality. But then what we find in this letter is that he had profound doubt about the capacity of his language, his literary language, to capture that reality. So consequently, I read him as a modernist. If we're working in this book on redefining modernism and thinking about it in relation to the colonial context, then I'm kind of redefining him uh, as a modernist. And so what I do is, as, as you mentioned, I go on to um, think about um, his works of fiction as ironic. And this is not something that's uh, unusual, uh, uh, at least... Uh, from the beginning, uh, his, his works are known as comical. Um, he has a sense of humor um, or, or a kind of, uh, what can we say, like uh, um, inappropriate, you know, jesting 
in his, in his, uh, in his uh, uh, or sort of rawness, uh, comical rawness in his writing. And so this is not, it's not unusual to find critics talking about Kim Yoo-jung in this way, but specifically thinking about irony and thinking about irony as um, a kind of dual layered phenomenon. I mean, the basic definition of irony is saying something other than what you mean. Right? And so um, then the, uh, sort of I, the opening parts of chapter five, I think I talk about some of his major works in terms of that structure of irony. Um, there's one uh, work called spring spring, um, it's really one of the most famous works that he published, um, where you, you see exactly this kind of dual structure. On the one hand, you have a layer of reality where the protagonist, the Alizon, the one who doesn't know, the one who is confidently unaware of what's going on, is experiencing his reality. Right? He's, he's um, sort of, uh, he wants to marry this young woman, and he's, he's working for her father, um, as a farmhand, as a laborer in the fields. And little does he know, but her father has used the series, a sort of series of young men uh, as free labor, always with the promise of his daughter's hand in marriage. And so on the one hand, this, 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 this farmhand, he's laboring under the impression that as lo- you know, what the father-in-law says is that as soon as my daughter grows a little bit, is a little taller, then you can marry her. <laughs> um, but she just doesn't appear to be growing. And furthermore, the protagonist knows that her mother is quite short, and so there's little hope that she'll actually grow. But he keeps laboring under this hope that he'll he'll earn uh, the, um, the woman's hand in marriage. Um, but we know, as as those who know, as those who are sort of um, in collaboration with the ironist, we know. Um, that the father is just using this as an occasion to get free labor. And we watched the sort of struggle, um, often comical struggle, of this young man um, uh, as he goes through reality without really knowing what's happening to him, um, what the father-in-law is doing to him. And so this is very characteristic of Kim Yoo-jung's work. Um, and what I do is I, I, I sort of go on in, in the chapter thinking about this gap between the victim and the ironist. Um, and this contradiction between external appearances and deeper reality um, as a sort of occasion to um, see Kim Yoo-jung putting into practice his, his doubts or his um, suspicion about language uh, and its capacity to um, reveal reality. So really reading uh, Kim Yoo-jung as a, as a, as a uh, uh, how can I say it, as, a, as a, an author who's interested in the sort of technical aspects of language and how it can convey this gap between um, surface meaning uh, and deeper meaning and how it can confuse or confound our ability to interpret that meaning. I think this is really sort of central to the modernist project, and I, I try to read it into Kim Jong's work. Awesome. Thank you. So yeah. now we come to the final figure, um, and I just want to spend, you know, make sure we have just a little bit of time to, to cover this figure as well. This is Lee Tae-jun, and you talk yeah. about, um, in these two chapters, the way that he's typically understood in literary histories, and that is as a kind of poetic writer interested in representing socially marginalized characters, a kind of dilettante, um, and someone who's also criticized as a collaborator um, with Japanese colonialists. So it's a really interesting figure. Um, um, as he's typically represented, but of course, um, as is the case with the other two figures, you're really interestingly revising that. So you talk about him and his work in the context of a series of lectures collected at the end of the 1930s, and this is a time that's just before the implementation of colonial language policies that would, as you put it here, nearly eliminate the Korean language as a medium of public discourse. It's a really interesting time in terms of the history of language and the history of language um, as a colonial kind of object as well. 
Now you say um, in this chapter, the work is often considered or kind of dismissed, not dismissed, but considered as and read as a writing primer. And you're doing something really, really different here. You're using it to try to understand, um, at least as, as I read it as one reader, right? Um, is um, the way he's thinking about the relationship between writing and speech in a really kind of surprising way. Um, so could you talk about that a little bit? How are you um, interpreting him in terms of his understanding of writing and speech and their relationship? Um, and then perhaps how does this manifest in his idea of a prose lyric um, in the next part of the book? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is, um, Itejun is such a fascinating figure. I mean, he was one of the few um, authors who was able to make a living through his writing. Um, he was he was incredibly popular at the time. He was also a powerful editor, um, and he ended up hiring many of the uh, sort of other authors that we read from the colonial period and, and employment at his, uh, at his newspapers. Um, also kind of known as an arbiter of style. He was just incredibly influential uh, during this period. And finally, he founded this, you know, this, the group of nine, this collective of uh, modernist artists and critics um, and poets. Um, so just a huge figure um, in the colonial period. Um, the, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, the, this, these sort of lectures on composition, uh, typically not taken too seriously, but I think that um, if you take a look at them, it's just, a, they're, it's just incredible. He just covers an enormous range of literary practices. The sort of central question is, or the central goal is, so how to produce meaning in language? How can we use language to mean something or to produce a certain affect? Right? So both sort of uh, on the intellectual side, the meaning of the text, and on the emotional side, the affect um, of the text. And as you mentioned, um, he does this in a very interesting way through his consideration of speech. Um, he, I, <clears throat> you don't get this immediately from his work, but the sort of deeper you get into it, when you, when you begin to look at his work, um, his, his sort of theory of language, then it seems as though um, he's understanding speech uh, in sort of a commonsensical way the way we understand it as this direct expression of interiority, right? The, um, the closest thing to your consciousness or your mind is speech, as opposed to writing, uh, which is uh, sort of formed or formal or considered or takes place over time. Um, speech is that thing which is closest to what you actually mean. It's closest to your heart um, uh, or to your identity, right? your interiority. Um, but as you go deeper into the lectures, uh, you begin to see that for Itejun, uh, even speech is fallible. Even speech doesn't approach a sort of adequate relation to reality and requires composition. And so he's got this wonderful injunction in the, in the, in the lectures to write speech, right? to make speech adequate to the reality that it's, to what it's saying, whether it's in sort of internal or external reality by writing it, by, um, structuring it by using the techniques that he advocates in these lectures. Um, and he sums these techniques up uh, sort of under the uh, word munjang or composition. I mean, munjang can also just mean literature uh, or literary practice, but I, I sort of use the word composition to stress um, how he's thinking about the careful arrangement and structuring of language, um, even spoken language, um, into a work of literature that can adequately convey um, its meaning or its affect. And it, this comes out, I think, in the idea of lyrical prose. I mean, this is a, seems immediately to be a contradic contradictory term, lyrical prose. I mean, lyrical, uh, lyric is the sort of utterance overheard, right? Mm -hmm. It's the sort of unthought, spontaneous uh, expression of the self um, to oneself or to no one. 
sort of, oh, you know, you're walking in the woods and you, you just sort of see something so beautiful that you exclaim, um, this, this utterance overheard or this pure expression of the self or, or the consciousness. Um, whereas prose is this kind of carefully crafted, structured narrative that takes place in time and space, um, obeys certain laws. Uh, and so bringing these together, this sort of spontaneous uh, expression of the self with the carefully uh, crafted narrative, uh, prose narrative, is, um, I think, a really interesting way to look at what Ite Jun is doing. And it allows us to get past some of the um, stereotypes that we have uh, about him as somebody who's interested in only emotion and not intellect, who's only interested in the past, not the present, not the colonial present, um, who's interested in the ideal and not the real, who's immersed in his uh, sort of self uh, as opposed to being engaged with the social. Um, these are some of the stereotypes that I think that typically in literary history we have about Ite Jun. And thinking about what he was doing in his practice um, as lyrical prose, I think, allows us to both include those perceptions of him, but also get over them through this sort of contradictory idea of um, prose narrative. So in the sort of overall progress of the book, if we see Kim Yu-jung as criticizing in his love letter the idea that um, language is adequate to its object, right? Sort of embodying this crisis of representation of the fallibility of language. And if we see Pak Taewon is anxiously putting this into practice, you know, my God, language, it can't, uh, you know, it's not adequate to, how can I express things in language? And how can I develop these very specific techniques to make meaning evident, to make language mean things in my fictional work? Then I think we, we can see Ite Jun as a kind of theorist of this project, um, or this process of, of, of sort of modernist practice in the 1930s in this, in this collection of lectures, lectures on composition that you mentioned. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, now, as we come to the concluding part of our conversation, we also come to the conclusion of the book. And the conclusion of the book is really, I, I thought it was particularly brilliant. I mean, what you're doing here is you're proposing three interrelated statements that give us a way to think through how to bring all of these studies, all of these, all of these cases, all of these people, all of these points together into a set of larger ways of rethinking, not just modernism and Korea, not just this particular um, case study of literary modernism in this particular place, but how to think about some much larger consequences of the cases that you are presenting to us. And so the three statements are Korean modernism is modernism, Korean modernism is political, and Korean modernist texts, their formal analysis. They've already talked a little bit about the middle one, Korean modernism is political, but the other two really get at two of um, perhaps the most important um, kind of general arguments that the book is making, in addition to making these very specific arguments, and that is um, you're really using these cases to, as you put it early in the book, de-link the concept of modernism from either European-centric or nativist perspectives and sort of think outside of this European other, European nativist binary. And also um, trying to give us a way to talk about and to compare modernist practices across time and space, right? And so right. these two statements, Korean modernism is modernism, and Korean modernist texts bear formal analysis, really speak, um, at least in my perspective, to these larger themes and larger kinds of arguments. So as we come to the, clo to the close of our conversation, um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, in this Korean modernism is modernism, and these texts bear formal analysis. Why um, are these statements in particular important, and how do, this, how do these statements help us rethink the larger frame 
um, in which this study fits. Yeah, I think we talked about it a little bit before. Um, there's the sort of genre argument of the book where I'm moving against received genre ideas of what's realist and what's modernist. And then there's the consequences of this in our sort of method or um, in literary history um, as a way of valuing or, or how do we value or devalue these literary works. And so in that kind of context, Korean modernism is modernism. is kind of insisting um, that... Uh, uh, we we take a sort of broader perspective on what we find when we look at non-Western modernism. I mean, there's there's just you know often this sort of acknowledged or unacknowledged um, idea that um, non-Western modernisms are derivative of European modernism, and I think that if we think a little bit more broadly um, and understanding. Um, and, and and try to understand modernism as um, what Susan Stanford Friedman, uh, Susan Stanford Friedman, who comes up in the in the conclusion here, uh, said it calls the um, um, what does she say there? Um, I don't have it right here, but something like the, the the modernism is the expression of any given modernity or the expressive dimension of any given modernity. Then we're, what we're looking at in in the case of Korea is a particular modernity, yes. But that shouldn't disqualify the, the text that we read there as being uh, called modernism from a more global or planetary perspective. And then the idea that uh, Korean modernism bears formal analysis, I think, has kind of a couple, couple of consequences. One is, uh, I think, local uh, to the, the sort of literary historical context in Korea. And that is a context in which modernism has often been considered apolitical and sort of devalued and, and not carefully read. That, that isn't true over the past um, maybe 10 years, uh, 10 or 15 years, but sort of in standard literary histories, that's often the case. So I wanted to insist that it bears formal analysis. It's worth reading. It's complex. It's interesting and something that we should pay attention to. But the other sense of, you know, Korean modernist texts bear formal analysis is the idea that it's the form itself. It's the form of these texts, the formal aspects of these texts, um, where the kind of relationship that we've been talking about between art or literature and, and context um, really emerges. So the idea of the book is to look less at the content of the works, even though there is content analysis in, in, in the book, and to think more about how it's the formal aspects of these literary works. It's there that we can find their engagement with their discursive context. It's there we can find the kind of ways, in, the revolutionary ways or innovative ways in which these authors are using language to engage with um, their colonial context, not in an explicit sort of content, not, not, not through the inclusion of objective elements in the content of the work, but through their formal engagement with that context, with that discursive context. And so that's what I tried to... Um, Try to, what I tried to mean uh, through the idea that Korean modernist texts bear formal analysis. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And even though we've been talking for an hour, there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to cover. I mean, the book is full of really close, really sensitive, and really enjoyable readings of a lot of individual works um, that we didn't talk about. But also there's a lot of other elements of the analysis and of the narrative um, that we just barely scratched the surface of. Yeah. Given that, is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? No, I think that I think that we, you know, through your careful direction, we did a pretty good job of covering most of the major concepts that I get at in the book. I mean, um, I'd be delighted to continue, you know, just go on and on about it. But I, I think we're all set. Great, and and um, you know these conversations are not um, replacements for the book. So hopefully listeners will, and I encourage listeners to go and read the book because there's a lot in there um, that 
as I've already mentioned, really repays close reading, not just for people who work on the history of literature in East Asia, but also many other kinds of fields. That's right. And it has, and it has a beautifully designed cover. So (laughs) the cover is also beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, as I mentioned, it's a great book. What's next for you? Is there any project or are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? Yeah, there are just, there are several things I'm working on, um, these days, and in in many ways, they're connected to the real modern. This this sort of earlier project. Um, one of the things I'm working on right now is the idea of the uh, the fact or facticity um, in the in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, so not just this crisis of representation in literary circles, but this broader um, crisis of the fact. Um, and you can see where this would sort of link up with the relationship between historical context and um, what's sayable or doable in language at the time. I think there was an even more radical questioning of the truth or the truth of the fact uh, the later we get in the colonial period. So I'm, I'm looking at a particular philosopher of history from the late 30s and early 40s named Hao Yin Shik, um, and especially how, as a as sort of scholar of literature, especially how his work deals with the capacity of literature to convey the truth, um, and also his sort of broader theorization of truth and language. Um, the other thing that I'm working on right now is it was with a colleague, uh, Dennis Washburn at Dartmouth College. Um, and this is something I'm really excited about. It's, it's related in a way. It takes, it's a project that comes out of the colonial period, uh, the, the period of uh, Japanese empire. Um, and we're working with a group of scholars uh, in the U.S., Canada, in Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, uh, on the issue of race and racism in East Asia in the early 20th century. Um, and here I think we're really most interested in how race or racialized identity was represented in various media. And then to think about the, the way that affect or sort of affectful meaning was produced or intended in these representations. So the folks we're working with are just amazing. They're, they're doing work in media, you know, photography, radio, what else, fashion, plastic surgery, travelogues, records of speech, tattoos, postcards, the popular press, film, film soundtracks. I mean, it's just an amazing um, project, and it's a transnational project as well. They're, we're looking at um, sort of race and racism under Japanese empire, but transnationally. And for the, the authors are looking at Brazil, Russia, Manchuria, Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Hokkaido, all, all kinds of places. And so That's amazing. just think, yeah, thinking about this, I think in, in, the issue of race and racism in, in relation to the colonial period is really exciting to me. So I'm, I'm excited about that as well. So, Chris, um, I already can tell just from listening to those two descriptions that this is not going to be the last time we talk for the channel. <laughs> so I will eagerly look forward to talking with you again uh, when those when those projects come out. Um, and so also just thank you again. Best of luck with your new work. Congratulations on this. And thanks for making the time. Oh, thanks so much. It's just really been a pleasure to talk with you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.